So it's where you, you have a couple of good trades and you feel happy about things, you feel like you're the king of the world and you, you know, every trade you touch turns to gold and you start to then think, well, gee, I'm so good at this, uh, you know, I might as well take bigger risks and bigger positions because I, I, I'm clearly on a hot streak here. And in my experience, that is often the time when the market is about to dish out a good dose of humble pie. Have you ever wondered about how we make decisions about our money? Or why we feel the way we do about those decisions? Welcome to Nudging Financial Behavior, the podcast that aims to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about money. Presented by Dr. Giselle Willows, an expert in behavioral finance. This podcast is all about looking at human behavior and biases, especially when it comes to your finances. You can catch the series on YouTube, the Nudging Financial Behavior blog, or on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to like and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. Special thanks to our sponsor, IG Market South Africa, a world-leading online trading provider that gives you access to opportunities across thousands of financial markets through their intuitive platforms and apps. Let's get started. Welcome to the third episode of season two of the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast. I'm Dr. Giselle Willows. Thank you for joining us. In this series, we're breaking down human behavior and biases as we try to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about your finances. We've already covered two big topics this season, risk aversion and loss aversion. In this episode, I want to follow on from that conversation and unpack the notion of uncertainty. It's important to understand that our ability to tolerate risk and our loss aversion are both impacted by uncertainty. To help with this, I've got Garth McKenzie joining me a little later. Garth is a prolific trader. He's going to have some great stories to tell. But before we get going, don't forget to hit the like and subscribe buttons. Uncertainty and risk might seem like they go hand in hand and that they're intrinsically linked, but that's not quite the case. You see, risk deals with known probabilities. Well, uncertainty deals with unknown probabilities. These two terms are commonly mixed up with severe consequences. Let's look at an example. In 1961, Daniel Ellsberg performed an experiment where he set up two urns, both of which contained 100 balls. The first urn contained 50 black and 50 red balls, while the second urn contained a random combination of black and red balls, so an unknown probability. Participants in the experiment were asked to select which color ball they wanted to pick and out of which urn they wanted to pick it. The participants were found to be more inclined to pick from the first urn, which contained 50 black and 50 red balls, with the reasoning that it was less risky. This creates a paradox. It isn't necessarily less risky, there's just less uncertainty. As humans, we prefer the defined risk. Our brains immediately see the 50-50 split and feel like the odds are much more in our favor. We'll take a known probability over an unknown one pretty much any day. To us, we're taking the safe choice. Here's a real world example. Consider the difference between life insurance and severe illness cover. They're both insurance policies, but life insurance pertains to risk and severe illness cover pertains to uncertainty. With life insurance, 
Actuaries perform calculations that consider your age, gender, lifestyle, medical records, family history, etc. and calculate your risk of dying because you are going to die. It's just a matter of when. With severe illness cover, you're insuring against the diagnosis of an illness that is included on a set list of severe illnesses. This is incalculable. There's no way to know if you're going to develop something like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease. Not acknowledging or understanding the difference between risk and uncertainty is the sort of confusion that lent a hand in the 2008 financial crisis. Not in generations has Wall Street absorbed the number of body blows it took today. The American financial system is rocked to its foundation as top Wall Street institutions topple under a mountain of debt. When you step back for just a moment, consider the events uh, of the last few days. It is truly unbelievable. Those in the financial industry spend a lot of time trying to measure and manage risk. But risk that cannot be quantified isn't really risk. Unless you can put a number to it, it doesn't exist. And this is where you find true uncertainty. I now want to introduce you to the law of small numbers. This law essentially states that we put too much emphasis on small quantities of information. Consider a coin toss. Yes, I'm using a coin toss a lot to make my point this season, but it's a good way to illustrate these concepts. Every time you toss a coin, there's a 50% chance that it will land on heads and a 50% chance that it will land on tails. But when we start tossing that coin and it lands on tails three tosses in a row, we may feel like the next toss has a high probability of landing on heads. But that's not accurate. The odds are always 50-50. This approach would be appropriate if you had that urn with an equal number of red and black balls in it and you randomly picked out three balls that were all black and didn't put them back in the urn. In that situation, yes, the probability of picking a red ball does increase. But when tossing a coin, each outcome is entirely independent of what came before and after. This leads us quite nicely to the next bias in our conversation, the gambler's fallacy. Its name is a giveaway. Consider how gamblers think that a particular number on the roulette table or lottery hasn't come up in a while and therefore is likely to come up next. What the gambler is doing is incorrectly thinking that there is a finite pot of numbers that aren't being replaced every time one comes up, when in fact it's fair game for all numbers on every spin and every draw. I've got a little joke that will help illustrate this better, but I'm going to let my intro guy tell it. He's much better at telling jokes than me. Hey everyone, good to be back. Okay, a statistician is afraid of flying due to the small chance that there'll be a terrorist attack. So, on every flight he goes on, he takes a bomb with him in his hand luggage. His reason is that the probability of a bomb being on the plane is very low. The probability of there being two bombs on the plane is practically zero. I do love a good stats joke. But can you see the problem here? The gambler's fallacy exists because we don't understand statistics, or at the very least, we don't understand the difference between a random process and one that is not. There's another bias to talk about here, the hot hand effect. It's really the opposite of the gambler's fallacy, but it comes from the same misunderstanding of statistics. The name comes from basketball, where fans and players alike tend to believe that a player's chance of netting a shot are greater following a successful shot than following a missed shot. It feels like a bit of momentum is on their side. What's happening here is that the recency effect has now poked its head up. 
Recency is another bias that we'll cover in detail later in the season. For now, you just need to know that it means we place more emphasis on events that happened most recently. We're projecting that and expecting another positive outcome after a previous one. The thing is, all of these events, the toss of a coin, the spin of the roulette wheel, the basketball players shooting for the hoops are the same. None of them show a positive correlation between tosses, spins and shots. Past events will not change the probability of an event happening in the future. As Tversky and Kahneman rather bluntly put it in their journal paper, I'm going to hand back over to Caesar because he has such a great voice for things like this. The true believer in the law of small numbers commits his multitude of sins against the logic of statistical inference in good faith. The representation hypothesis describes a cognitive or perceptual bias which operates regardless of motivational factors. Basically, we're not the smartest when it comes to statistics. I think one of the biggest problems we face is that the world is a lot more complex than simply tossing a coin. It's easy to understand the concept of uncertainty through that example because it's so isolated from external factors. But in the real world, things become interdependent on each other. And interrelations in the financial market, a particular share in the housing market, do exist. I've got Garth McKenzie on the line with me. Garth has been trading for a long time, working for BOE stockbrokers for many years and doing some impressive things. Now, Garth continues to trade his own capital as well as hosting his own podcast called Talking With Traders. Welcome to the podcast, Garth. Hi, Giselle. It's great to be with you. Before we get into the detail of what we're discussing in this episode, let me take things back. You started trading when you were 14, 16? Yeah, that's right. So I, I started getting interested when I was 14 um, and I opened my first actual trading account when I was 16. And, uh, and what got me interested really was, my, well, my dad actually got me interested in it. And uh, we used to mock trade with, we, we, we'd follow the share prices in the newspaper back in the day because that was like 1994. So it was before online share trading or anything like that. And, and we, we basically picked out a handful of shares in the newspaper and tracked their performance and 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 fictitiously traded with uh with with you know make make believe money and and did that for a while and that was fun and then after yeah after i was 16 i decided i wanted to actually do it for you know with real money and have a proper go and so that was when my proper trading experience started but you know it was very much trial and error and far more error than anything else in the early days uh, it, it, until I got exposed to markets and actually got a, a seat in a dealing room and started trading and being exposed to proper traders. But yeah, the, the interest goes back to when I was a teenager, yeah. And we know how our emotions sort of trip us up when it comes to just general money decisions. But I almost get the sense that our emotions are on steroids when we are actively trading our own money. What has your journey been like when it comes to understanding your emotions and how they impact your trading decisions? Yeah, that's absolutely right. You, you, you do find that when your own money is on the line, you get the, the emotions are significantly heightened. Uh, and, and you'll notice that if you ever try paper trading or, or demo account trading and do that versus actual trading with real money, you'll notice that th th it's totally different because when your own hard-earned money is on the line, the emotional aspect of it is just so vastly different to when it's not for, you know, when it's play-play money. So yeah, absolutely. Over the years, you know, I've experienced lots of emotional ups and downs. Uh, that is just unfortunately part of the nature of trading. Really, is that the, the the emotional highs and lows can be quite high, 
and uh, and and part of the the process, I guess, is to actually try and develop a system, develop a strategy, so that you can sort of flatten out the the extremes of the highs and lows. Because a lot of the best traders that I've ever come across, I find, are very even keeled. Generally, they they don't get too down in the dumps when things are going bad. They don't get too elated and excitable when things are going well. They try and remain relatively even keeled and stick to a strategy and just see the bigger picture. Because uh, emotions, unfortunately, often are the enemy in trading. It's almost like you need to be indifferent no matter what happens to your trade. Yeah, that's right. You, you, you need to be able to sort of accept that losses happen. And that's just the nature of trading. Uh, you've got to just try and keep the losses small, but no trader goes through this business without incurring losses. It's it's just like a, you know, like a restaurant owner has to bear the cost of purchasing raw materials or raw, raw food. Uh, it, it's a cost of doing business, and in trading, very much the same. Your losing trades are uh, it's part of the cost of doing business, and you've got to accept that that is part of the process. But at the other end of the scale, also, you know, you're going to have some pretty good times where you make good money and your returns are flowing freely. And at those times, you've also got to be on top of your emotions as well on the other end of the spectrum to ensure that you don't become too overexcitable and, and then start you know, swinging the bat a little bit too hard and, and taking too much risk. So emotional control is very, very important as a, as a trader. Yes, well said. So in this particular episode, we're talking specifically about our emotions and biases and how they sort of trip us up when it comes to things that we're uncertain about. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And because also as humans, we don't really understand statistics very well, we can easily fall prey to a bias like gambler's fallacy, which I'm sure you've heard of. Three losing trades in a row, so you're pretty sure that the next trade is going to be a winner. I know you definitely have stories that you can share with us about this particular bias. Oh, most definitely. You know, from my own experience, as well as from uh, being a broker and seeing other clients trade, how they do it. You know, the, the, the notion that, yeah, you've had three losing trades or four losing trades in a row, uh, and therefore the odds must surely be improving that your next trade is going to be a winner. It's, it's actually nonsense. Uh, the reality is the probability... I guess is always 50-50, right? The market's either going up or it's going down. So it's one of those two things. You can enhance the probability in your favor by you know, having a good, a good strategy and a good uh, technique and, and methods that give you, on the whole, a higher probability than 50-50. But you know, realistically, anything more than sort of 65 70% long-term success rate is, uh, is, is, is exceptional in this business. So when it comes to that term gambler's fallacy you know, and, and looking at it and saying, well, you know, the market's been down five days in a row, therefore it's got to be up next. It's, it's, you can't look at it like that. You've got to be very careful of that type of thinking. And I, I see it particularly with traders that average down. And averaging down is a very, very bad habit. It's basically where you, you, you buy and then the price goes lower. So you buy some more and the price goes a bit more, bit more down and you buy some more, you know, until eventually you've got such a big position and you're so deep under the water on this position that all of your irrational, your, your, your rational thought goes out of the window. 
You've got to be very, very careful of that uh, because that, that is an, a, a classic example of where you see that happening. And similarly, on the other side, you know, in trading, you can go long and short. So I'm, I'm not just talking about buying here when the market's falling and falling and falling. At the same time, there's lots of examples where traders will short a stock because it goes up. And they, the thinking is, you know, it's gone up and it keeps going up and so overbought that it must come down. Uh, so, so traders will short and short and short and short until eventually they end up getting squeezed out of that position as the market continues to rip higher. So one does need to be very careful of that sort of thinking because markets will inevitably move to the point of maximum pain or the point where they ex exert the maximum pain on the maximum number of people. And unfortunately, that's often when you see the capitulation happen either direction it can be when the market falls and it, it falls into a deeply oversold level and you suddenly find that you know, there's a vast number of traders that puke out at the bottom uh, and, and the volume explodes and that's often where you get the the capitulation where those who have been averaging down into a weak stock end up just being forced to close out and and similarly on the other end of the spectrum when you go you know price going higher and higher and higher you get what's called a short squeeze and a short squeeze is where your, you, you know, the short, the, the, those who have sold short end up being forced to buy back at a significantly higher price than where they went into the trade. And, and unfortunately, if you're averaging into a bad trade, that, that is an example of, of gambler's fallacy where you think, you know, because it's just gone down and down and down, it's got to go up or vice versa because it's gone up and up and up, it's got to go down. It doesn't always work that way. Yes. So with gambler's fallacy, we think things are going to turn around. And then there's the other bias known as the hot hand effect, which is now the opposite, right? You now think you're on a winning streak. Have you seen this sort of thing happen as well? Yeah, I have. And I've had firsthand experience of that many times earlier in my career. And, and you're right. So it's where you, you have a couple of good trades and you feel happy about things. You feel like you're the king of the world and you, you know, every trade you touch turns to gold and you start to then think well gee i'm so good at this uh you know i might as well take bigger risks and bigger positions because I, I i'm clearly on a hot streak here and in my experience that is often the time when the market is about to dish out a good dose of humble pie and uh <laughs> you've got to be very careful of that and i noticed in my earlier years as a as a young trader uh how often my best months were then followed by my worst months in the market. And why was that? That was because I probably got ahead of myself, become overconfident, start taking too much risk. You know, again, it's, it's a function of emotion, which, as I said, is the enemy. And, uh, and you know, the moment you start to feel like you're invincible, and that everything's just going your way. You've got to be very careful and you need to try and rein yourself in. And as I say, my, my best months often were followed by my worst months for that exact reason, because I'd become too confident, overconfident, allowed emotion to get the better of me. And then all of a sudden the market dishes out a big dose of humble pie. And that definitely <laughs> keeps us in line. It certainly does. It certainly does. But it's frustrating. You know, it's very frustrating to have those emotional highs and lows because you can go from feeling on top of the world one month to feeling absolutely at the depths of despair the next month and and that's what you need to try and be careful of as a trader because 
you know, managing your, your capital is very important in this game, but there are two types of capital. And this isn't always talked about, but obviously we've got our financial capital, which is, you know, the rands and cents or dollars that we're trading with. The other type of capital, which is very important, is your emotional capital. And you've got to protect that. Just like you protect your financial capital, you've got to protect your emotional capital as well. So you don't want to find yourself, you know, being so despondent that you can't even place the next trade. But at the other end of the spectrum, you also don't want to find yourself becoming so overconfident and so elated that you start doing silly things and taking unreasonable risks. It's important to uh, to keep your emotions in check and to man manage your 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 emotional capital because that is a vital component uh, of of trading to be emotionally stable. Yeah, I'm sure our emotional capital is even more at risk when we're going through big falling markets. And I'm asking this because you've already said that you started trading at such a young age. So I don't want to mention all the crashes you've seen in your lifetime. I don't want to give your actual age away. But how do those big events or yeah. black swan events in the market, how does it actually heighten our susceptibility to these biases and irrational trading decisions? Well, it, it really does. And I think the, the, the thing about you know, market crashes is that they happen quickly, but they, don't, but they also kind of happen slowly in a way. It, it, it erodes your, your, your confidence you know, day by day by day, I suppose. And what you often find with a market crash is that it sort of starts slowly, but then it ends very, very quickly. And that, that very quickly part at the end is often an example of where the collective emotions of the market have started to take over and you start to see panic selling. And it, it's funny because the stock market's the one place where when everything is on special or it's discounted by 20% or 30%, people want to run out of the store. And as opposed to, you know, typically when, you know, when things are on sale, people want to rush in and buy. But in the stock market, it works the opposite way. When, when things are depressed and prices are falling, it seems that's the time when people capitulate. And I guess is that there's a recency bias element to that. People attach a lot more weight to what has just happened recently versus what might have happened f looking further back. So if you've had a market that's, that's fallen, you know, suddenly 5, 6, 7, 10% in a fairly short space of time, the fear then becomes that it's going even lower. And, and that yeah is is where you start to see people beginning to capitulate and i think it's 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 tough because as an investor you know it's very difficult to ride out those hard times and and we often see it that people end up selling out their portfolio at those low points and then they're not in and when it when the market does eventually stabilize and bounce back they're not involved you know and and it's it's sad, but that's the way the market works. We've seen it over and over and over. The, the best traders, the best investors, I guess, are the people who are on the other side of that type of behavior and are able to identify the market crashes and, and pick up bargains during those times. But for the average person, it's, uh, yeah, you, you find they do tend to sell at the bottom or close to the bottom when things are the most depressed. And they also, on the other hand, tend to buy when things are running very, very hard and very overbought. And it's a function of that recency bias, I guess. You know, people think that what's just happened will continue to happen. 
I'm so glad you mentioned recency bias because we're actually going to be covering this bias in detail in a later episode of the season because it's so relevant to this discussion. Yeah. So that's something for the listeners to look forward to. Yes. What's your advice then? I mean, I know you already said that the best traders are even killed about losses and gains, but any tips from you on how we can manage our emotional anxiety or our emotional capital when it comes to our money decisions? Well, I think, I think the one thing is have a strategy. If you're a, if you're a trader, and I think at this point, maybe we must just differentiate between trading and investing because they are quite different disciplines. Um, so let's just maybe deal with, with, with trading first and then investing in second. Uh, trading is a lot more active. You're going to be buying and selling a lot more frequently, but it's also probably something you should be doing with a smaller part of your capital. Um, you should probably be focusing a larger part of your capital on more like longer term, bigger picture investing. When it comes to trading though, and, and in managing that emotional capital and have, in terms of, of, of advice, you know, have a strategy. Um, there are many, many different ways to trade, but you need to find a trading strategy that fits with your personality style. And then also understand risk and know how much you're willing to lose on a trade. Because keep in mind, trading at the end of the day, it's a probabilities game. You, you, there's no certainty in this, but you're looking for opportunities where you believe the probability of, your, of success is, is greater than 50-50. But at the end of the day, it is a probabilities game and you are going to have losing trades. So I think go into it accepting that and knowing that. And also go in knowing how much money you're willing to risk on each individual trade. The, the golden rule out there is that you should never risk more than 2% of your capital on an individual trade. Now, personally, I think that's too much. Uh, over the years, as I've gotten older, I've found that, that I prefer to less risk you know, even less than 1% of my capital on an individual trade. Uh, and what that means is that if the trade goes wrong and it reaches your stop loss point, you don't lose more than that specific amount of your capital. If it's 2%, you don't lose more than 2% of your capital. The nice thing about losing 2% of your capital is that you've still got 98% of it left. I see it with a lot of traders where they go in and they risk far too much on individual trades, you know, risking 10%, 20% on an individual trade. And the problem with that is that if you string together three or four or five losing trades in a row, you very quickly wipe yourself out or you get into such a deep drawdown that it's almost impossible to recover from that. So manage your position sizes, manage your risk and have a strategy and try to stick to the strategy. Because that's the other thing I find with a lot of traders, amateur traders, is they tend to strategy hop. They find that one thing's not working, so they hop to another strategy and then hop to a different one and a different one. Try and stick to a strategy that, is, that works over time and manage your risk and manage your um, position sizing. So that's when it comes to trading. Um, in terms of, of investing, I think similar thing applies in that you need to have a strategy, but I think also you need to be somewhat diversified and also you need to have your sights on the bigger picture. So when it comes to investing, understand that you're not, you know, you're investing for the next 20 years, 30 years. You're not investing for next week. You know, you might be trading for next week, but when it comes to investing, it's for, for the longer term. So you need to try and keep your sights set on the longer term, on the horizon, and try and ride out the bumps in the road. Know that markets are volatile. There are crashes. There are ups and downs. But, you know, you need to try and um, 
you know, not let short-termism get too much in the way of your long-term investing strategy, because that, that, that can be very detrimental to your long-term strategy, especially when emotions get involved in market crashes and things like that. that, that that's unfortunately when a lot of people make their worst decisions, and, and it can be very costly in the long run. Some very wise words from someone who's very experienced in all these emotional responses. Thank you, Garth, for sharing these stories with us. It's great to know that we're not alone. Even experienced and skilled traders can fall prey to these internal biases. We're all human. Really appreciate it. Absolutely a pleasure. And yeah, we are all human. And don't, don't think that the, the most experienced traders don't make mistakes. We all do. We all still make mistakes. Uh, I think it's just that perhaps we maybe we deal with them a little bit better and we also accept that they come from time to time. So now you know, risk and probabilities don't go together when we're in the domain of uncertainty. There are a few areas where we can rely on clear probabilities. Think of coin tosses and casinos. More often, we are left with uncertainty. And with that, we need to learn how to tolerate it. That means that we need to stop worrying about our lack of control over our investments. Rather, go do something constructive like base jumping or mountain climbing, where you actually have an element of control. I'm actually not joking. You generally do have more control in a situation like base jumping. But on a more realistic and down-to-earth note, my goal for this episode was really to help you spot those moments where you think you might be in control or you might be onto a winning streak, but you're actually not. It's so easy to fall into the trap of gambler's fallacy or the hot hand effect. But now that you're aware of it, hopefully you'll be less susceptible. Thanks for sticking with me through episode three of the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to give it a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel so that you know when the next episode comes out. Next time, we'll be chatting about the disposition effect and seeing how loss aversion plays out in the investing world. See you there. That was Nudging Financial Behavior, hosted by behavioral finance expert, Dr. Giselle Willows. Make sure you like and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can catch the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast on YouTube, our blog, or your favorite podcast streaming platform. Thank you again to our sponsors, IG Market South Africa, for helping to bring the show to life. And now for the disclaimer. This podcast should not be seen as advice. All the information and opinions are of a general nature. They are not intended to address the needs or circumstances of any individual. We are not financial advisors, neither are any of our staff or service providers, nor is our sponsor. All expressions of opinion by the host or guest are subject to change without notice in reaction to shifting market conditions. Any information you get from us should be seen as only that, information only.